Genesis chapter 6. Just open the front cover and turn a couple pages in. You should be able to find it. Genesis chapter 6 this morning. I, I so appreciate the music and, and uh, just the, um, the ability that God's given to people in this church. You know, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, is a pastor up in Pennsylvania. He said, boy, you should hear us when we sing in church. He said, it sounds like a bunch of nails screeching on a chalkboard. He said, nobody can sing, you know. Um, and he said, we, we, we sing, but he said, nobody wants to hear it. But he said, everybody can't sing, so nobody notices that it doesn't sound bad, you know. But um, God's really blessed us with people that can sing and, and that can play music and that can do all those things. And so I appreciate it. My wife does such a lot of work with that and, you know, plays for all the songs. And I mean, I, I, I don't know how you play the piano and then sing a harmony part at the same time. She's done it for years and does a great job with it. And God's given her that ability. She always said uh, when she was growing up, of course, her dad was a pastor. And she always said that she was never going to marry a pastor, never going to marry a pastor, you know. Well, God obviously prepared her for that for her entire life, and uh, I'm glad she did, because I don't know what I'd do if she didn't. But Genesis chapter 6, a lot of people are familiar with the story of, of Noah's ark, Noah in the ark, right? That's one of the first stories you learn when you start Sunday school as a little kid, and, and you've probably heard it 10, 15, 20 times by the time you get into first grade, you know? It's one of the most widely used names for daycares, you know, Noah's Ark Daycare. You know, how many times have you seen that, and even around this area, you know? Um, every, uh, seems like every kid's nursery that's related to any kind of Christian ministry has a Noah's Ark with a bunch of animals on the inside of it, right? You go into a lot of these little nurseries and churches, and there's a big mural on the wall that somebody's painted of Noah's Ark. It's a, it's a very familiar story to us, and we know... All, we know the whole story about uh, Noah getting all the animals to come into the ark two by two, which, by the way, is an amazing thing. I mean, most people can't even get their dog to listen to them, let alone every species of every animal two by two to come marching into the ark, you know. Obviously, God was behind that whole thing, um, but this, that was the way that God was going to preserve the animals because everything on the earth was going to be destroyed. I still don't know why Noah didn't just slap those two mosquitoes while he had the chance to do it, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, there's, actually, there's a lot of debate on whether or not there were insects on the ark. I started thinking about that. I said, man, think about how many, in, that, that boat would have been crawling with bugs if they'd put two of every insect on there, you know? So I said, I wonder if there was insects on there. I'm sure somebody's done some research on it. So sure enough, I went in at Answers in Genesis, which is, um, they do a lot of, they've done the Creation Museum, and now they've built a life-size replica of Noah's Ark up in um, uh, Ohio, and they, they did a whole thing on it. And, of course, there's a whole lot of debate back and forth on whether or not there would have been. And uh, when the Bible talks about every flying thing, and that's one of the things that it mentions that came onto the, earth, uh, onto the ark, we consider it to be animals. But some people say that, well, that can be interpreted as everything that flew, which would be bugs and everything else. But then it only says flesh. Well, bugs don't have flesh, you know, so were bugs on the ark? Who knows if they were or not? You know, there's the also, the, the, also the possibility... I mean, think about how much vegetation must have been floating on the top of, of all those waters, you know. So there's a possibility that those, I mean, there's a lot of insects that lay their eggs in the water or on vegetation in water. So there's a possibility that they could have survived that way. I don't know. But uh, either way, Noah took one of everything, two of everything. And, and actually, even if you look at it in um, just a couple, in the next chapter, G Genesis chapter 7 in verse number 2, of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and a female, to keep the seed, to keep seed alive upon the face of the earth. 
for yet seven days, and I'll cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and so on. So some of these things he took in by sevens, you know. Um, most of it, though, was two by two, and we see that um, verse number nine. They, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. But, you know, we know the story, but I want to take you back just a little bit before all of this happened. God told Noah to build this 450 feet long, 45 foot tall, 75 foot wide ark because of what was going on in that day. This ark would have weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of 43,000 tons. That's 86 million pounds. Can you imagine that? And here's Noah doing all this work himself. No wonder it took him 120 years to do it, right? 86 million pounds of wood that he built in this ark. And that was not with cranes and all of these other things. I don't know what he did to get this thing going, but could you imagine, uh, you know, uh, essentially Noah and his family, the Bible says in verse number five, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Essentially, Noah and his family were the only ones that were living for God in that world at that time. And, you know, Noah was not so far. I mean, if you look in, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 5, it's, for me, it's on the same page. You might be able to look at that. I mean, you go back and, and um, you can see all the generations of everyone that lived on the entire earth up to, the, up to Noah. It's not that many generations from Adam to Noah. Uh, but had, they had a lot of kids, and they had a lot of, you know, there was a lot of people who were alive on the earth at that time, and every one of them, the Bible says, every one of them, their thoughts were only evil continually. Doesn't that sound exactly like what we're facing in our world today? Right. Those, th these are the people that make our movies. They're the people that are thriving in politics. They're the ones that are, you know, producing the music of the world. The thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. And I'm not excusing it, but they're just doing what the devil has told them to do. The devil is their father. The Bible says that in John 8, 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. They're just following what he's telling them to do. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people in this world that follow their father a whole lot closer than Christians follow theirs. That ought, to be, that ought to be convicting to us because many times that's exactly what happens. Oh, well, how can they do that? But, but you follow their father often. The devil tells you to do something, you do it, right? God tells us to do something. Well, if I get around to it, then maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get to it at some point, right? They're a whole lot more dedicated to what their father tells them to do than, than we are many times to what our father tells us to do. But that the thoughts of their hearts seem to be only evil continually. Look what it says in verse number 11, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth. By the way, that was before guns. <laughs> There's a whole lot of ways that violence can take place besides guns. Uh, verse, verse number 12, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Think about that. What an enormous pressure that must have been on Noah's shoulders. The entire earth, everybody that was alive at that point, their thoughts were only evil, nothing but violence, exactly against what God was telling them to do. I'm sure he was looked down upon by the rest of the world 
as they went on their wicked way. You know, oh, Noah, Mr. Holier Than Thou, oh, you're going to do what's right, oh, you know. I'm sure he faced a lot of that. He was the only one in the entire world that was doing right. I mean, you know, we, we have it easy compared to Noah, if you think about it. You know, we, we always talk about, oh, everybody hates Christianity nowadays. Think about how many millions of Christians there are in the United States alone. Millions. We have more people by far in this auditorium this morning that ha are on the same page as us spiritually that are serving God and trying to worship God than Noah had in all of the rest of the earth when he was alive. Think about the pressure that must have been on Noah. But he loved God. And he lived for God. The wickedness was so great, in fact, that the Bible says in verse number 6 that it grieved God all the way to his heart. Wished that he had never made man. Could you imagine what a deep hurt and a pain that it must have caused God to see his own creation turn so blatantly against him. But in the midst of all of this chaos and sin and violence, one man stands out in God's eyes. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 8, the Bible says this. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse number 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. What a breath of fresh air Noah must have been to God. What a, what a testimony Noah was to a lost and wicked world. He was just and he was perfect in his generations. Now, maybe you've never noticed this before. But that word generations is plural. That phrase stuck out to me. And I thought, well, maybe what it's talking about is, you know, obviously Noah's children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they, they followed God. And so maybe the generations that came after Noah, maybe that's what it's talking about. So I started to study it out a little bit. And the more I studied it, the more I realized that there was, you know, there's, there's not much that Noah can do about the generations that come after him. I mean, he can train them, right? He can, he could, he can do everything that he can to try to make them and, 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 and teach them to live for God. But essentially, they're going to grow up, and they're going to make their own decisions. And even if you train them right, and they start off on the right path, and they get to be 30, 40, 50 years old, and all of a sudden, their heart grows cold, and they turn off away after those. They're their own person. They, you can't force your children to do what's right. But the Bible says that Noah was, was just and pure and right and perfect in his generations. Now, Genesis chapter 7 and verse number 6 says that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. Now, obviously, people lived a lot longer back then, and there were, the Bible even says there were giants in the land in that day, dinosaurs. I mean, we find fossil, dinosaur fossils all over the place. Why don't we have those kind of things today? I, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail after this, but, uh, or on this, but essentially, the entire earth was covered in a layer of water. Have you ever heard of a hyperbaric chamber? They use hyperbaric chambers to heal athletes quickly. And they've actually reconstructed or, or you know, remade uh, life-size models of a hyperbaric chamber. What a hyperbaric chamber is, is it's literally an entire layer of water around the earth. And what that water does is it filters out all of the harmful rays that are coming from the sun. Right? Um, and so it, that allows things to grow much bigger than they would without those harmful rays. It allows things to live a lot longer than they would without those harmful rays. Now, we have all of that, so we're normal-sized people. We only live to be, you know, I mean, 100 years is old. Back in this day, they lived to be 6, 7, 8, 9. Adam was 930 years old when he died. Noah is 600 years old when he's building the ark. 
So, I mean, obviously, you know, he's not this old man walking around like this, not able to do anything. You know, I mean, he's building an 80 uh, or a, uh, yeah, an 83 million pound ark, right? So the thing is, they had never heard of rain before. And that's why when God told Noah, hey, a flood is coming, go build this boat. They laughed at him. What in the world are you doing? Is it, I mean, they didn't even know what a boat was, let alone, why would you build one in the middle of nowhere, right? Something, water falling from the sky? That's ridiculous. They'd never heard of that before because the Bible says that the dew came up and that's how the, the earth was, was replenished, was watered, was through the dew and all of those kind of things. They'd never heard of rain before. And so this whole layer, how do you think it rains for 40 days and 40 nights? Which obviously God can do anything that he wants to do, but that entire hyperbaric chamber, that, in, that entire layer of water that was around the earth came down during that time. And so now we don't see dinosaurs. We don't see giants walking around. We don't see people living to be six, seven, eight, nine hundred years old anymore. And that, I mean, it's just a theory. The Bible doesn't talk about that, but it's a pretty plausible theory. They built a hyperbaric chamber and they grew tomatoes the size of watermelons in this hyperbaric chamber. They grew, they've grown a lot of other things. They, they put athletes in there for certain periods of time. And, and when, they, when they're healing from an injury, they heal much quicker in this hyperbaric chamber because of, because of those different things. But either way, God tells us that Noah was 600 years old when he went into the ark. Think about how many generations would have been around since now. I mean, if, if a generation comes every, even if we say every 40 years, which I think typically a generation is about 25 years, but even if we said every 40 years, think about how many generations came after Noah and came before Noah if he's 600 years old. And so I think what, this, what the Bible is talking about here by, by saying that Noah was perfect in his generations, that means he was godly, he was holy, he was upright in every stage of his life. In his youth, in his middle age, in his old age, Noah lived for God. Noah did what was right from the time that he was born until the time that God took him home. Throughout the entire course of his life, Noah was a holy and a godly man. He was just and perfect. Now, that word perfect doesn't mean he was sinless, but it means he was complete. He was right before God Amen. in his generations. So for all of his life, he lived for God. So what was it that caused Noah to find grace in the eyes of the Lord in the midst of such a wicked generation? What is it that will cause us to find grace in the eyes of the Lord through such a wicked generation that we're living in? There's, there's some things that the Bible gives us about Noah. That's just what I want to talk about this morning. Finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. Finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're given some characteristics and some qualities of Noah that I think we can use in our own lives if we want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray and we'll talk about those things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I pray that you bless the message this morning and that you'd speak to our hearts. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, look in Genesis chapter six, uh, 7. In verse number one, the Lord said unto Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Noah lived righteously. And if we want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord, we need to also live righteously. Notice that this does not say that Noah was just better than everybody else in his generation. 
I mean, obviously, the, the passages that we've looked at clearly show that there were no other people even remotely living for God. The thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. So if Noah, you know, Noah, just give lip service to God every now and then and then act like he cared about spiritual things, he's going to look a whole lot better than everybody else in the rest of the world. But the Bible doesn't say that he was good compared to everybody else. The Bible says that he lived righteously. Uh, Noah lived righteously before God. Righteousness is holiness. Doing what's right means that we are living holy before God. Having a strong desire to please God above all else. That's what holiness is, no matter the consequences. Because when you please God, there's going to be some people that are, that are not going to be pleased. When you please God, the devil certainly is not going to be pleased, and he's going to come at you with everything that he's got. He's going to try to get you distracted from living for God. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fair-weather Christians. They're willing to cr claim Christianity when things are fine. But the moment things get a little difficult or they get a little uncomfortable being a Christian, they give it up. Have you ever seen a chameleon? Maybe you've never seen one in person, but I'm sure you've probably seen one on a nature show. You've definitely seen them in pictures. Chameleon skin has a superficial layer that contains pigments in that layer, and then under that layer are cells with guanine crystals in it. And chameleons change color by changing the space between those guanine crystals, and, and that changes the wavelength of the light that's being reflected off of their skin, which is how, as they you know, walk past something that's green, they can change that green color. Th those guanine crystals are changing the way that the light is being reflected, and so it looks green, and so on. But I'm telling you, know, how often that describes those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Just a superficial layer of Christianity on the outside, and, and you know, Anytime the political climate changes against Christianity or anytime the social issues of the day align themselves against the word of God, they change to match whatever the world is doing. We're not supposed to live as chameleons in this world. We're supposed to stick out for Christ. The Bible says the, act, the exact opposite of living as a chameleon. He says we ought to be peculiar. We ought to be different. And I say that all the time. We, we're not, not to be different just for the sake of being different. We're not to be different for the sake of being weird just so somebody can say, oh, that guy's weird. He must be a Christian. But to them, we are going to look weird. We are going to stand out because we're not living for the world. We're not mirroring the world. We're not imitating the world. We're imitating Christ. And this world hates Christ. And they're going to do everything they can to try to make him look bad. And so those who imitate him, they're going to do everything they can to try to make them look bad. How often do Christians get portrayed in the media as these, you know, archaic people who are just, oh, they don't want, they hate change, and so they're going to do that. They're going to fight against all these good things that we need in our society. No, we stand on the principles of the Word of God, and if they're in the Word of God, then we ought to be willing to stand on them. And we're not going to change for the world because they're telling us that that's what we need to do. You will never, you'll never see the true blessing of God until you make the step to live righteously. You might see some temporary success. It might be that you don't see immediate failure, but I can promise you from the Word of God that if you don't make holiness your goal, and if you don't actively pursue righteousness, you will never have the blessing of God on your life. It can't happen. The Bible says in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, To the end he may establish your hearts 
unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. As Christians, we are not just called to live in this world and not sin and uh, you know, do everything we can to kind of keep ourselves uh, just a little bit above everybody else. We are called to holiness. And holiness means absolute perfection before God. Now, we're never going to be able to reach that state of sinless perfection. We are humans, we are flesh, and we're going to sin. But we ought to be striving for holiness. We ought to be striving for righteousness. And when we do sin, when we do make a mistake, it ought to tear us up to the point where we are on our knees getting that thing right with God the moment after it happens. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of our spirits and live? Now let me give you a little background into this passage. He's talking about correction that we get from our fathers. You have a father who corrected you, and you reverence him because you're so appreciative of what he did for you and the way that he corrected you and the things that he corrected you on because now you're living a life that's profitable because you were corrected. He says, how much more should you be willing to reverence your heavenly father because of that? But then he continues, verse number 10. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Do you know what that means? That means if you want to see the real blessings of God, you're going to be holy. He is moving us toward holiness so that he can bless us. That's what he says. He says, but he for our profit. He does it for our profit. God has to chastise us sometimes. Why? For our profit. It's the same, I mean, I mean, you think about this when, you know, uh, a kid runs out in the street. Let, let's say the kids are down here playing in the, in the road, and, and boy, it's great, it's so fun to ride down that hill, because boy, you can really get some speed on a bike. And they're flying out into Broad Street. Well, that's just a decision that they make. I mean, who, who am I to tell them that they shouldn't do that, right? They're having fun. Why should I stop them from doing those things? No. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down harder on them because I don't want to see them get squished by a car that's flying by as they go flying down that hill on their bicycle, right? I want to see them in one piece, not a bunch, right? And I'm going to chastise them. I'm going to chasten them because I'm going to try to teach them. You don't go on the road with your bike because there's a lot of danger out there. And you, you only see the fun. You may not see the danger of it, but that's dangerous. And I'm taking your bike for two weeks because I've already told you that or whatever the punishment is. I punish them not because I hate them. The exact opposite is true. Oh, I don't want them to have fun on that bike. I'm taking that thing for two weeks. That's not why I do it. I would do it because don't go in the road. It's dangerous. I love you and I don't want to see you in a coffin. I want to see you running around and having fun and doing all those things that kids do. That's why I do it and that's why God does it. God chastens us, not because he hates us or because he's trying to make it so we can't have any fun in this life. It's because he loves us and he wants the best for us. And the best for us is holiness. The more holy we become, the more like him we become, and the more like him we become, the more he can bless us. It's all for our own good. 
And so many times we only see it as restrictions. Oh, I just, I, I can't be a Christian because I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do this and I, uh, everything fun in this life I can't do because I'm a Christian. Well, the exact opposite is true, actually. What fun is there laying in a gutter because you're so drunk you can't even stand up? It's not fun. That's what the world considers fun. I don't know how. You know, what fun is there in, in, in sniffing drugs to the point where you, you can't, and, and I'm not trying to make fun of people who are addicted to drugs because it's a serious thing, but what fun is there walking around from shed to shed trying to find any, tiny, any kind of thing you can steal so you can go out and, and, and sell something for five bucks and go get your next hit? That's not fun. What kind of fun is there in, in contracting diseases and all of these other things because we're living the way the world tells us is a fun way to live? That's not fun. Living for God is fun. Living holy is fun. Living righteously is fun because that's when God can really bless you. He says that. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, verse 11. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. Verse number 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You want to see God? Live holy. Live righteous. Moses got to go up onto the mountain. He got to see God. The Bible says no man hath seen God at any time, and so Moses could only see the back of God as he passed by. But the Bible says that when Moses came down from that mountain, his face was so bright that the people couldn't even look at him. Could you imagine seeing God in that way? You want to see God? Follow holiness. Live righteously. Because without that, the Bible says, no man shall see the Lord. Our number one motivation has to be to please God. So many people, so many Christians live to please their, their current pastor or maybe a pastor that they grew up under. Boy, I hope he's pleased with me. I hope he's happy with what I'm doing. But if pleasing God isn't motivation enough, then pleasing your pastor will never keep you on track. Pleasing your pastor is never going to be enough motivation for you to live righteously. And I'm excited when I see people living for God and serving Him. It's an encouragement to me, so don't get me wrong, but don't do it for me. Don't do it for some other pastor or some other man. I, I'm just a man. I'm, I, I sure hope that it won't ever happen, but there may be a day when I let you down. There may be a day when I disappoint you. There may be a day when, you know, I may not live up to your expectations. And if you're doing it for me, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to get off track. There's a good chance that you're going to quit when I'm out of the picture, either because I retire or because I, God moves me somewhere else or I die. Who knows? But when I'm gone, what's your motivation going to be then? See, you do it because you love God and you want to serve him. Do it because he's holy. Do it because he's worthy. Holiness is keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. And that's what we're called to do in the forests of northern Europe and Asia, there lives a little animal called an ermine. 
and it's known for its snow white fur in the winter. And if you've ever seen a picture of one of these things, it kind of looks like a little ferret type animal, but it's perfectly, perfectly white. And this ermine instinctively protects his white coat against anything that would get it dirty. And so that's actually the way that these hunters catch these ermine. Um, they, they take advantage of that unusual trait. They, they don't set a, a trap to catch him, but what they do instead is they find his home, which is usually kind of in the cleft of a rock somewhere or hollow in an old tree, and they smear the entire uh, outside entrance and the entire inside with grime. And that little ermine, when the hunters set their dogs loose to find it, starts getting chased, and he's going to run back to his home. And he runs back to his home, and he finds all this grime all over the outside and all over the inside, and he is so intent on protecting his white coat that he will not go into that house. He will not go back into his little ca cave or back into his, into his little hollow of his tree or whatever else. And the dogs are able to catch that thing and kill it because he does whatever he has to do. Even at the cost of his own life, purity is more precious to this ermine. Boy, if that is not the way that it ought to be for us as Christians. We ought to be so concerned about making sure that our life is right and pure and clean and holy before God that even if it means I have to give up my life in order for that to happen, I'll do it. We'll find grace in the eyes of the Lord when we live righteously, but also look back in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 22. The Bible says this about Noah. Thus did Noah. God gave Noah a bunch of commands about building the ark and getting the animals together and all of these things. And the Bible says in verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Noah obeyed fully. And if we're going to find grace in the eyes of the Lord, not only must we live righteously, we must obey fully. You have to remember that he's the master and we're just the servants. Servants don't get a choice in the matter. They do what they're told. They faithfully do exactly what their master tells them to do. Now, I had the chance. Brother John was not with us when we did this, but I had the chance when we were over in Romania to go to a, 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 a tour a castle of a king, the king of Romania. And what a beautiful castle it was. But, you know, one of the things that we were told as we were walking through, in fact, it was as we were coming out that there were servants' houses on the property. And I'm telling you, some of these servants' houses, uh, all of these servants' houses were probably three times the size of mine. They're big houses, and, and there were several servants that lived in, the, in these quarters and things like that. But most of the servants to the king stayed on in that service for generations. And I'm not talking, you know, ancient King David and all these. I'm talking about, you know, uh, relatively recent kings. With, I mean, uh, you know, this, the, the, that king who owned that house actually didn't die till like 2004 or 8, something like that. But they taught their children how to do exactly what the king wanted. And they had all the benefits of living in the king's house. Their, their children had all the benefits of growing up in a palace and everything else. But they taught their children how to serve. They served. And, and I thought, you know, as we, as, as we were walking out of that place, you know, what a lesson that we should be taking in the way that we follow our own king. We're just servants. We do what the king tells us to do. Those servants, when the king said, hey, go do this, or, or you know, whoever was under the king that was telling them to do this, didn't say, hmm, if I get around to it, I guess I will. I know the king said it, but, you know, I mean, he's just the king. We live here too, right? Oh, they, they just do what they're told. And you know what? They teach their kids to do what they're told. That's a privilege for them to be able to serve the king 
grew up in, they, they grew up around royalty. They grew up in the king's palace. They grew up having the privilege of being able to serve the king. There's not many people in the entire country of Romania that could say that. And the same is true when it comes to us. We should be willing to do anything that our king asks of us. We should be willing to do anything that the king of kings asks of us. He's not just a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Whether he tells us, you know, we don't get the right to question whether what he tells us makes sense to us or whether it feels good to us to do it. We just do what we're told, and we should be teaching the same thing to our children. That's exactly what Noah did when God told him to build an ark. Something that's never been seen before, something that had never been mentioned before. He had no idea what a boat was. He had no idea what rain was. The idea of water falling from the sky was laughable. The idea of a boat in the middle of dry ground was crazy. But Noah's master told him to do it, so he did. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which ye have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It doesn't belong to me. I don't have a choice to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, obviously we can, but if I have a master, and I do, and if I am his servant, and I am, this is not my body. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. If I'm saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, and this is his body. I'm supposed to do what he tells me to do. And we're f- well, the Bible is filled with things that he's told us to do. God's not going to come to you in an audible voice and say, well, uh, uh, throw that Bible out. This is what I really want you to do. He doesn't do that. He, give, he gave us everything that we need to know how to live, to know how to serve, to know how to follow, and to know how to obey. And that's what we're commanded to do. I think about the words that were written by Robert Murray McShane to Dan Edwards. He was a pastor, Reverend Dan Edwards, on October 2nd of 1840 after his ordination as a missionary to the Jews. This is what Robert Murray McShane wrote. I trust you'll have a pleasant and profitable time in Germany. I know you'll apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument, and I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. See, a sword in the hand has no choice in how it's wielded. The master is the one that's controlling it. The sword just does what the master is telling it to do. And a sword in the hand of the master is a powerful thing. We'll find grace in the eyes of the Lord when we live righteously, when we obey fully. But lastly, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And obviously, you know the Bible for the most part. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith in the Bible. All of those who lived faithfully, lived in faith. And Noah is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 7. It says this, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The third thing, if we're going to see 
find grace in the eyes of the Lord is to trust completely. Noah trusted that God was going to do what was best for him. When I was an assistant pastor down in Chesterfield, one of the things I did was I worked a lot with the teen young men, and so we would go on these trips, and I'd take them different places. And one of the places, and I, I was thinking about it last night as I was working on this message, and I couldn't even remember, I still can't remember where it was, but one of the things that they want us to do was a team-building exercise. And so they said, we're going to do these different things, and, and they're really things that can only be done as a team. You can't do it by yourself because you need somebody to either lift you up or, or one of those things. And I'm sure you've heard of this before. But one of the things that they wanted us to do was a trust fall. One crazy volunteer stands up, and everybody else stands behind him, and he's supposed to put his hands over his eyes and just fall backwards. And everybody behind him catches him. And that's a trust fall because you just trust that they're going to catch you. You know, no, 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 of course, you have to fall the right way, too. I saw a video, and this, they were going to do this trust fall, and so the girl closed her eyes, and she fell forward, and everybody was behind her, you know? <laughs> You have to fall the right way. But that's what God expects of us. Trust him. Just fall on him. Trust him completely. It takes a lot of trust, especially if you've got a bunch of joker buddies behind you that are supposed to be the ones catching you, right? To put your hands over your eyes and just fall backwards and expect that you're not going to bang your head off the ground, right? But that's, that's exactly what God is expecting from us. He wants us to just Trust him completely. What he told Noah to do was a trust fall. Go build an ark. It's going to rain. I have no idea what an ark is or what rain is, but that's what you told me to do, so I'm going to trust you completely. If Noah had said, ark, rain, God, I trust you and I serve you, but that's a little beyond. You know what? Noah's family would have been in that flood with all the rest of them. Right. Noah trusted God completely to do what was best for Noah and his family. And God saved their family because Noah was willing to completely trust God. Does it seem like everything is going to work out for good? Not in today's age, right? Does it, does it seem like everything is under God's control? Not really. Does it, does it feel like we can stand up as strong Christians in a virtually godless world? Not really. But God's told us that those things are so. And he says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The world is going crazy. The world is filled with violence. The world is filled with men whose thoughts are only evil continually. We're to obey him and trust him and let the consequences rest with him. That's where faith comes in. I, I can't see your hand, God. I don't know what, what's going on in this world. I don't know how this is going to work. But this is what you've told me to do. So I trust you. It's God's responsibility to follow through with his promises. And somehow I don't think that he's sitting up in heaven sweating, wondering how he's going to work everything out. A German botanist was traveling in Turkey, and he saw a rare flower. It was hanging from what was essentially an inaccessible precipice. There was no way that he could get down there by himself to get this flower. And so he, he offered this young man that was passing by uh, a lot of money, and uh, he, he wouldn't do it. So he offered him a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And finally, that little boy 
he, was, he just wanted to sling this rope over the side and let this boy be attached to the rope and go grab this thing. He would pull him back up. But no amount of money could get this boy to do it until finally the boy was struck with a new thought, and he said, wait a minute. I'm going to go for my father to come and hold the rope, and when I get back, then I'll go over the precipice and grab that flower for you. But that's exactly what we ought to be doing as Christians. I trust my father. I trust him completely because he has the rope. He knows what's going on. He's got me. Arabian horses are trained very rigorously in the Middle Eastern deserts. And the horses, they, they train them to the point where they learn to, to fully obey their master. Now, my dog obeys, but it's usually when he wants to. He runs around, smells something, and whatever, Teddy, get over here. He'll wait five or six seconds like he didn't hear you, and then all of a sudden he'll come running back. He heard me. He just wasn't ready to come yet, you know. But these Arabian horses are trained that when they're given a command, the instant they're given a command, they obey. They do what they're told to do. So this obedience is actually tested by depriving these horses of water for several days. And, of course, they're out in the middle of the desert. And then they turn them loose near water. And as the horses get to the edge of the water, and just before they get to the point where they can drink that water, the trainer blows his whistle. And if the horse has learned full obedience, he will stop right before he gets to that water and turn around and come running back. And that's how they know that that horse is completely trained. If that horse goes over there, gets water, and then comes running back, the horse is not completely trained, and they work with it and work with it and work with it until it is. The trainer knows exactly what that horse needs. He's not going to let that horse die from a lack of water. He's not going to let that horse suffer because he's not getting what it needs. God knows what his children need, and he wants to supply it. Just like those horses, we have to trust him. We've got to trust him. I can imagine how happy it makes the heart of that trainer. When that horse is about to stick his head in the water, and he blows the whistle, and that thing stops and comes running back. Can you imagine the satisfaction that must come to that trainer, knowing that that horse is exactly where he wants it to be? And how happy it must make the heart of our Heavenly Father. When he tells us to do something, it doesn't matter what we're in the middle of, doesn't matter what's going on, doesn't matter what situation we get into, we're going to follow his commands. We're going to do what he wants us to do. Could you imagine how that must make the heart of our Father feel? Can you imagine... What, Noah's heart, what, what Noah must have done to God's heart when in the middle of all this wickedness, here's one guy who says, I'm just going to follow you. I'm just going to live righteously. I'm going to live holy. I know the rest of the entire world is not. We say that, oh, the rest of the world follow, doesn't follow after God. It's not the rest of the world. There's millions of Christians who are following God. Noah, when he said the rest of the world's not following God, was literal in what he said. Nobody else was following but Noah made the decision that he was going to live righteously. See, our Heavenly Father loves us. He knows us. He cares about us. He knows exactly what we need, when we need it. I just, I just want my Heavenly Father to be proud of me. I, I want to obey Him. I want to live righteously. I want to trust Him completely. But sometimes we get off on those things a little bit. You want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
You have to live righteously. Noah did. You want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord? You have to obey completely. Noah did. If you want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord, you have to trust completely. Noah did. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for how good you are to us. Thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to live for you. Thank you for the truths that we have from the word of God about how we can see your blessing, but it's only going to come when we make that step towards you. So reminded of the prodigal son, he made the step back toward the father, and the father ran all the way down that road because he was looking for him a far, long way off, ran all the way down that road, fell on his neck and kissed him, the Bible says. He was waiting for him. God, I wonder how many people there are in here this morning that you're waiting for to make that step back towards you. Make that decision to just live righteously. I don't care what the rest of the world is doing. I don't care what the rest of Christianity is doing. If I'm the last person left on this earth that's living for you, I'm going to live for you. Oh, God, if we could have some Christians that would be willing to say that this morning. There is no telling. There is no telling how you can use us. Oh, in the same way that you used Noah, you want to use us. The same God of Noah the same God that we serve today. Pray that you help us to trust you completely. That we'd be willing to make decisions where decisions need to be made that we're just going to live for you. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand.